Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails today. I have a lot of emails to get to, some good ones. Up to your patron, she writes, I feel very concerned for my 12-year-old child. I separated from his father eight years ago. My son has shown extreme preoccupied attachment style. I am giving my son the safe place, attunement, and all the love he wants. I also have been reading attachment theory for a few years and, of course, your 17-hour deep dive on Patreon. Now, the issue is my ex is an extreme avoidant attachment style, and when our son is with his father every other week, he is having my son is having a hard time sleeping because he wants hugs and love but does not get it. I have been in many fights for years with his father because he cannot see him as he wants. My son still sleeps in my bed beside me. I know, I know, and I hope that he stops himself soon. What can I do? End of email. Yeah, tough situation. Obviously, family therapy involving all three of you is the best course of action, and that might require some diplomatic convincing of your ex-husband. Individual therapy for your son and or for you. I have talked with a lot of parents in your situation. They can't get their ex to go to therapy. There's a lot of things you can do as a, as a single parent to or as a parent to help the situation individually in therapy. And the other thing here is, as I always say, you have to develop a working relationship with your ex. Now, it's been eight years since you separated. So, and it sounds like you've been in a lot of fights and that the ship might have already sailed to some extent, but this is advice to everyone else that is listening. If you're headed towards divorce and you have children together, you have to develop a working relationship with that ex. It is very tempting and you'll get a lot of support from friends to just burn that bridge. My dog is barking at who knows, <laughs> probably people walking by uh, the house with their dog or something. Um, and the temptation is uh, for a lot of people, and again, you'll get support from your friends and family to just be like, screw that guy. He treated you terribly, you know, just and then, of course, you hire lawyers and they might encourage you to do that as well. And by the time the dust settles, you are in a ext- extremely a conflictual relationship with your ex and now begins the co-parenting process where both of you have to coordinate and work together and influence each other regarding your parenting. But you hate each other's guts. So it's important that as you head into divorce, when you have kids together, that you keep your eye on the ball and you make your priorities and you say, I want to hate this person but I can't hate them. I want to reject them and get rid of them and use a bunch of ammo against them. But big picture in five, 10, 20 years from now, I'm going to have to live with this person. I'm going to have to work with them. I'm going to have to have them like me so I can influence them. I'm going to have to keep that a very strong bridge open, right? Not only just a, a mild courtesy uh, bridge, but a deep connection, one that you actually coordinate in a very complicated task of parenting. So it's tempting to say, you know, screw this person. They cheated on me or they treated me badly. I'm I'm really going to let them have it. But you have to think of the big picture. And like I said, a lot of your friends and family will encourage you to burn that bridge because there's just this compulsion of, 
they want to, they're angry at that person too in on your behalf. And so you're not going to get a lot of support. You're not, you're not going to have a lot of people say, okay, I understand your anger, but you have to see the big picture here and express your anger, but don't express it towards that person. Don't express it towards your ex in a way that's going to, you know, destroy your relationship with that person because you have to keep a relationship anyway. So like I said, the ship might've sailed, spent eight years of of conflict with your ex-husband and maybe it's all his fault. Maybe you've done everything you could do to, to make it better. But um, anyway, so what can you do now that that ship has sailed to some extent? Well, continue with attunement, continue with keeping your eye on attachment of your son. He might have some delayed attachment security as evidenced by the fact that he's 12 years old and he still sleeps with you. There's nothing terrible about him sleeping with you, but it, it just keep an eye on that, of course, as time goes on. The the key is is that children need to feel secure, and so sometimes you have to uh, do th- other things to account for other things. <laughs> and I know you're going to get a lot of judgment from people. It's like he's 12 years old and he still sleeps with you. I mean, he's basically going through puberty at this point, and he he still sleeps in bed. That's that's crazy talk. No, it certainly is culturally crazy talk, but it's not empirically. The now. As time moves forward, it's important that he does learn to be independent in a variety of ways. And how do you do that? Well, uh, you don't just kick him out of your bed. That's not like necessarily the thing to do. But if it was part of an overall campaign of transitioning him uh, through helping him with emotional regulation, helping him to detriangulate, I'm guessing he's triangulated into the conflict between you and your ex-husband. And so helping him to not be triangulated into that, helping him to develop other attachments, maybe with another male figure in his life, having multiple secure attachments with multiple people could help with that as well. And like I said, emotional regulation is a big one. Help modeling emotional regulation for yourself, modeling differentiation for yourself, for him, helping him with differentiation, helping him with emotional regulation, having multiple secure attachments will likely result in him developing better than otherwise. Now, you say he has extreme preoccupied style. At the age of 12, it's going to be hard to change that. We develop our attachment styles for the most part early in life. We can change it over time for sure, and you should try, but it might take a while. Uh, he's heading, he's 12, he's getting older. In all likelihood, he, uh, that his attachment style isn't going to be changed greatly over the next 10, 20 years. So just lower your expectations on that a little bit. And also say, that I've seen situations where parents are doing everything right and the their ex-partner is doing a lot of bad things and no matter what you do as a parent, you just can't uh, stop the damage from happening to your kid because your ex-partner is just not parenting well enough. And there's only just there's only so much you can do. And you do everything you can within reason, but Sometimes it's just how things worked out, and it's a tragedy to watch your child go through that, but it, it happens. And and so sometimes what I talk with people about in your position is 
just accepting that that is what your son's going to go through. He entered the world as a part of your life and a part of his father's life. And he is going to, you know, reap the benefits and the disbenefits of that. And you're responsible for trying to help that, but you might not be able to affect much change anyway. But of course, like I said, best case scenario, weekly family therapy with all three of you would, I'm guessing, solve a lot of the problems. All right. This next email is from Upper Tier Patron Christina from New York. She says, I have complex PTSD or possibly borderline spectrum. Is complex PTSD or borderline related to my obsession with my appearance that I've had since a very young age? My obsession with my appearance is unrelenting, and uh, I have an unrelenting need to be the most beautiful person in the room. I feel really guilty about it. Some days I feel gorgeous, and other days I feel ugly. Anytime I feel rejected, I immediately blame it on my appearance, even though, logically, I know this is a distortion. I will run out and do something to improve my appearance in order to soothe myself. I'm nervous to bring this up to my therapist because I'm not sure if it could even be related to complex PTSD or borderline. Have you ever encountered or heard of this? End of email. Yes, this is a very common symptom to relational trauma. Basically, the conceptualization is that some people develop a complex regarding how people perceive their physical appearance. The individual as a child is being rejected and or abused, and the child is forced to look for a solution to that and also look for a reason as to why they're being rejected. And for whatever reason, physical appearance becomes the association. They either uh, consider their physical appearance to be the reason why they're being rejected, meaning I'm being rejected. It's because I, I don't look good enough or something. Or and or they consider it a solution in that, hey, and the child figures out early in life that, hey, if I look cute or if I look pretty, then I get some attachment security and attachment safety and attention that I need. So uh, or both, like I said, so the, the child either experiences abuse because of their ugly. That's how they perceive it and or they perceive attachment security, the little bit of attachment security that they can get to be attached to how they look. And then the person connects physical appearance with attachment safety. It becomes very, very much connected in their soul. And as a result, whenever there's rejection happening in their life or whenever there's attachment insecurity, immediately this association becomes quite strong and an obsession develops regarding how one looks. And yeah, absolutely tell your therapist about it. Even if it wasn't related to complex PTSD or borderline, you should absolutely tell your therapist about this. I get questions like this sometimes. People say, well, I don't know if I should tell my therapist about this because if you are asking yourself that question, I don't know if I should tell my therapist about this, tell your therapist. Just say, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, but dot, 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 just tell them. Obviously, if you're having an obsession about your appearance, that's absolutely important to tell your therapist. Also, if you are having massive self-esteem swings due to your self-perceived appearance, tell your therapist, I get why you're not. I'm guessing, as you say, you feel guilty. I'm guessing you feel ashamed. I'm guessing that part of you actually gets a lot of self-esteem from looking, as you say, gorgeous. And that's okay. Therapists are not general. They shouldn't be 
like general society where they're just going to ridicule you for being stuck up or, you know, narcissistic or something. It, it th- good therapists will understand, oh, I, I totally get it. Plus, you've probably talked about or at least alluded to the traumas you've been through early in life. And so it's not going to be hard for the therapist to make those connections. All right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Jack from Canada. He writes, my friend is highly stressed out. She is kind of a drama tornado, even though she doesn't mean to be. She's a 40-year-old, but she acts like a 16-year-old sometimes. Usually, I would just fully distance myself from her, but she has two dogs that she has been severely neglecting. I have no idea how I would approach bringing that up with her without her freaking out or getting negative. I don't want to call the pound, but I feel like something should be done. Is there any way to open up dialogue? End of email. Yeah, yikes. And I'm glad you care, upper tier patron Jack from Canada. That's good. Just some tips before I talk about opening up dialogue is to offer to take the dogs temporarily. I'll also maybe point her to how foster homes might be able to help. Sometimes foster homes will take animals temporarily while someone is going through something. You can call Pet Finder and other organizations to find those in your area. And you're saying calling the pound, but it's really a matter of, uh, in I don't know, in your jurisdiction in Canada, uh, what sort of authorities you would call, but you would obviously Google that. But you can make a report to the authorities who will usually reach out to the family and, and try to help them because there's no use in alienating the family. It's usually you try to work with them. And as you say, it's not like your friend is out to harm the animals. She's just very stressed out and is having a hard time in her life. And there's a lot of reasons why pets will become neglected. Uh, obviously, emotional troubles, mental health issues, physical problems. We actually took a cat a year and a half ago because a friend of my wife's uh, posted, she posted on Facebook that her mother was having a lot of health problems and was having a hard time keeping care of her cat. And so we took the cat temporarily. We basically fostered the cat. Now, the cat died after a year. So we had the dog, we had the cat at the last end of, you know, end of life. But there are options and sometimes it'll be, it's a hard decision to make, but it's an easier decision. You know, that usually the first thing you want to do is offer that as opposed to calling the authorities, right? Because if, if you can get the animals out of the house and into a good home and it's framed as a temporary thing, then usually the original dog or cat owner will be more amenable to that, right? It's less insulting. It's less permanent. You know, when they get their life back together, they can get the animals back, that kind of thing. As opposed to calling the authorities, that, in, that could be, a, you know, a much bigger deal. Anyway, you're saying, though, is there any way to open up dialogue? Yeah. You go on a campaign and whatever that sort of entails. But one strategy is you reach out to your friend and you make sure you establish a good friendship, that you have a routine together, that you are seen as a likable, trustworthy, supportive person. And maybe you've already done that, Jack. And then you... Over time, you start asking questions maybe about the animals. You, you say, you know, so it seems like you're a little overwhelmed right now. Is, is Have you thought about maybe 
having your two dogs stay someone else somewhere else for a while because maybe that would take some stress away from you of having to take care of them. It would just be for a month. In fact, I I might even know a place where the dogs could go. That would be a really great place to live. Have you thought about that? You know, you just start to introduce those ideas. And then if that doesn't work, then you might just blaster with it and say, look, I just have to level with you and say that I'm terribly worried about your dogs. And I understand you love those dogs, but I also see that you're under a lot of stress and it makes sense that it'd be hard to take care of the dogs. And so I'm just going to tell you that I'm, I'm really worried about your dogs. And I know you are too, but I also know you're very stressed out. And so is there anything we can do to help the dogs? Now, your friend might get real upset and you deal with that too, you know, and you say, okay, well, let's talk about it another time. And then the next day you call up and you say, look, you know, I just want to apologize. I know that you were really hurt by what I said earlier, but I, I just want to know, I just want you to know that I love you. But I also really care about your dogs. And, uh, you know, I'm, I just figure there's got to be a solution here that every you know, win-win where you get the dogs off of your hands for a little bit of time and so you can get back on your feet and then the dogs can just live somewhere else just for just temporarily. It's, 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 you know, it happens all the time. It's not a big deal. And, you know, you just, you just do your best. And, uh, but you have to make a call here because if you care about the dogs, which sounds like you do, then sometimes it's worth taking those risks regarding your relationship. Right. So, yeah, but Jack, I'm glad you're out there helping those animals. Uh, the world needs more people like you. All right. This next email is from famous patron Lyndon. We've been calling, if you didn't know, if you're new to the podcast, we've been calling Lyndon, famous patron Lyndon for years now. <laughs> he was one of the original patrons and he won the very first award for best fan. I can't remember. He actually flew out from Ireland to receive his trophy Anyway, Famous Rachel Lennon asks, um, on a previous episode, you spoke about becoming invisible as a coping style in a family where there is stress or fear or lack of attention. What does being invisible look like inside of the family? Right. So the way being invisible will look like inside the family is the person being made invisible will be ignored as they'll be treated as if they don't exist. They are sometimes not favored. Sometimes it's clear that another sibling is favored over them. They can sometimes be kind of quiet and perhaps socially anxious. But the main thing is, is that they just don't really exist. It's as if they're not, it's as, it's as if they're like a distant cousin who is visiting the family. They're not a fully fledged child with all the benefits of that role, if you, if you know what I mean. So that's what it'll look like. FPL asks a lot of questions here. How does it affect someone later in adulthood and when fully grown? So it, it can affect people in a variety of ways, but a common presentation is avoiding attachment, meaning that they learned to just ignore other people because they believe they can't get their attachment needs met. When you're consistently ignored and neglected, you just realize What's the point in asking for attachment needs? What's the what's the point in asking for attention? You just never get it. And also, what's the point in even knowing my attachment needs? What's, what's the point in even acknowledging my own emotions, for that matter? 
because emotions are there to signal us for a variety of important things, including I'm being ignored or I feel lonely or I want a hug. And when those emotions are just troublesome because, you know, you have this emotional sense of, oh, I'm lonely. And then in a secure family, you would, oh, you feel I'm lonely. And then you signal to your caregivers or anyone that you need help. And then they come to your aid usually. But if you're consistently ignored, then you learn, look, and this is a neurological thing, and they've demonstrated this, that you just learn to cut yourself off from awareness of your emotions in general. And we don't have the ability to just turn ourselves off from particular emotions. We turn ourselves off, off to all emotions. Uh, also, people in adulthood who were treated as if they were invisible might have long stretches of emotional numbness and then spikes in anger because the emotionality will just get too much for them and they'll just have a huge spikes in anger all of a sudden. It might manifest in abuse, obviously, but it could also just manifest in angry feelings that aren't necessarily expressed. These people, invisible people, are sometimes attracted to preoccupied people because preoccupied people will bridge the gap. If you're if your attachment avoidant and you are invisibilizing, you've been invisibilized, one of the things you will do is you'll invisibilize yourself as an adult. And then uh, you need your attachment needs met as an adult. And so what do you do? Well, you learn that the only way to get your attachment needs is if you just choose someone that is extremely preoccupied with you, that they very much invade your space because that's the only way you're going to get close to someone. Now, there are pros and cons to that, obviously, but so a lot of invisibilized individuals will seek uh, closeness with preoccupied people because the preoccupied person will bridge the gap for them. They will make themselves invisible by focusing on others in various ways. They might try to meet other people's needs and really focus on pleasing other people and or they might be very critical of others and will focus on others in that way instead of looking at the self because they have a hard time looking at the self. Anyway, FPL asks, how is this idea interpreted in the context of family systems? I love this question, FPL. It's clear that you've been listening for a long time and have learned a lot about family systems theory. And at this point, you're probably more sophisticated than most of my students. <laughs> um, and you're not a clinician. Uh, but anyway, so how is this interpreted in the context of the family systems? Uh, well, so in the context of the family system, well, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. One is, is that there is a lot of high family anxiety regarding people getting their needs met and about rejection. There's low differentiation or fusion. And as a result, everyone needs to play their role so the family can be predictable so that people can eke out at least a little bit of their needs. And you'll find that in families that are struggling, the invisibilized person is just one of the rigid roles. You'll have the invisible person. You'll have the angry person. You'll have the narcissistic person. You'll have the addicted person. You'll have the star. You'll have the scapegoat. You know, everyone has to play their role. In more well-functioning families, you'll find that people will have roles sometimes, but there's a lot more flexibility to it. Uh, when you have a struggling family, everyone basically be, says, and this is a subconscious process, everyone says, look, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get some attention 
if I do this role, if I really stick to my lane. I know I'm not going to get a lot of attention because no one is getting a lot of attention in this family, but I'll get some love and attention if I stay in my lane. If I step out of outside of my lane, then there's a risk of me losing out on the little bit of attention and love that I get from staying in this lane. And so people tend to stay in their lane. And the invisibilized person will stay in their invisible lane and they, they won't step out of that. So the individual is elected by the family system subconsciously to play that invisible role because they might offset the narcissistic or the enmeshment between mother and daughter, for example. You know, they, they, they sacrifice themselves on behalf of the system so that other people can get love and attention in a different way. They also volunteer for the role, right? They get elected. Every role is subconsciously elected, meaning that the rest of the family pushes you into that role and the individual usually volunteers to some extent. The cons to this is that you're ignored, obviously, but the pro is that you don't have to deal with drama and that you sometimes are seen as the good kid in contrast to the scapegoat or just others that take up more emotional space, or at least you're the easy kid is usually how you're seen. It's like, oh, little Johnny is just so easy. He just never has any problems. And whenever I ask him what he wants, he he always just seems satisfied and okay. And I just love him to death because he just is so helpful in of course, the child on the inside is, you know, very lonely and upset and feeling neglected. FPL asks, is there any relationship between invisibility and a diminished sense of self? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Developing a sense of self requires that you're given love and attention early in life. And when you're invisibilized, you don't, you don't have that opportunity. FPL asks, does, does, an invisible, does, does an invisibility coping style make loss of self even more challenging to heal from? It can. So there's a lot of different roads to a development of the self or lack of development of the self, obviously being abused, neglected in all of its various forms. Being invisibilized can make it actually harder to heal because when you enter therapy, you will tend to make yourself invisible to the therapist as well. And if the therapist doesn't really put a lot of effort into assessing that and countering that, the healing process will be hindered by the fact that the the client will not only appear as though everything's fine when everything is not fine, but even when attention is drawn to them by the therapist, they might have a lot of anxiety about that because it's pushing them out of their very comfortable lane. And, and a lot of times the invisibilized child will – have a lot of bad associations with attention, at least emotional attention, uh, because of the way they were treated when they were young. And so the invisibilized adult will be very, very good at convincing the therapist that everything is fine and that they don't need anything. They're very, very good at getting therapists to collude with their defenses. Whereas if you're preoccupied on the borderline spectrum, it's very obvious to a therapist that something's going on. And although that carries with it its own countertransferential pitfalls, uh, which, you know, I've gone into a lot, the, the invisibilized client can just be very tricky. And so the, the therapist has to, and I do this a lot with my supervisees, a, a good amount of time I, that I spend with my supervisees is reminding them that the quiet, 
uh, seemingly secure clients might be the most struggling. Because if you're preoccupied, at least you occasionally demand attention and love and you make your needs known so that other people can at least give – they're given the opportunity to at least know that you're struggling when you're preoccupied. When you're avoidant and or invisible, then no one knows and you seem to be totally fine. And so uh, the thing I always tell people to think about avoidant attachment is that underneath the defense of avoidance is a preoccupied person. The preoccupied person is just overt with their pain and their hopes for getting their attachment needs met and their demands. The avoidant person has all that too. They just have buried it under this veil of avoidance where they have tricked other people and themselves into thinking that they don't have a preoccupied insecure attachment. Anyway, uh, you ask another question from a different email that says – FPL says, uh, the 90 Day Fiance episodes are kind of firing things in my brain. For Brandon, uh, adulthood from Brandon's perspective, does Brandon see being an adult as an empty, cold, dark, frightening, etc.? Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by the question, but if I am interpreting it right. Yeah, when all children and all everyone, when we are transitioning from infant life to adulthood, every step of the way is scary. When we have to take our uh, driver's license test, when we have to go to kindergarten, and when we have to get our first job, when we have to face the consequences of getting an F in a class or something, you know, every step of the way of responsibility carries with it anxiety and consequences. You know, being an adult and being responsible for your life has a lot of downside to it. You know, I'll I'll talk about my own self. When I was 18 and in high school and I was graduating, I, you know, was expected that I would go to college. I was accepted into the University of Washington and it was expected by my family that I was going to live on campus and that I was going to actually join a fraternity. And I was, it was summertime, And I just really liked living at home. I really liked that my mom did my laundry (laughs) and she, uh, you know, bought the food for the house. And I didn't have to worry about how to clean things or, you know, I just, I was worried about moving out. And I actually, uh, at some point, I don't remember exactly when, but indicated to my family that I was thinking about staying at home because I didn't have to live on campus because University of Washington is in Seattle and I just lived just outside of Seattle with my family. And I, you know, brought that up. I was, I, you know, a lot of people are just like, oh, I can't wait to get out of the house and go to college. And, you know, there's a certain part of me for sure that was looking forward to that. But I had it really easy. I had it really good at home. And I, I felt the fear or the the sort of annoyance, I guess, with with responsibility of having to do things on my own. And I voiced that to my family. And my, I never forget, I think it was my mom. She, she said, no, 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 not an option. You're moving out and you're joining a fraternity. And that's just how it's going to be. And we'll pay for it, but that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, I guess, uh, I guess that's what's going to happen now. I just, I just wasn't an option. And when I moved out, 
yeah, there were a lot of things that I adjusted to. I remember trying to figure out how, how to do laundry. Now, I know a lot of you out there are like, my God, like you didn't do your laundry when you were in high school. And yeah, I, I did it. I remember learning about, you know, separating whites from colors and using detergent and, you know, washing machines are kind of complicated. Even today, when I, sometimes I'm just staring at my washing machine, I'm thinking, what is the right setting here? And I have all these like random ideas about like what temperature you're supposed to have it. And I'm pretty sure most of it's wrong. But anyway, I just remember a lot of things like that where I was like, well, I'm going to be living with a bunch of strangers. I've never been, I've never been away from home for longer than a few days, really. And I'm kind of a homesick person. And so being away from home for forever, I don't know how that's going to feel. So every step of the way, even transitions that we would consider to be positive in our life have anxiety that we have with it. And so Brandon, if, you know, I don't know, of course, it's always speculative, but based on the way that he is as a, I think he's 27, based on the way the parents are, based on the way they've talked about his history, it's possible that the parents for, you know, their own trauma reasons, I'm pretty sure the mom has been through some significant traumas in her life, but who knows, due to whatever reasons the parents have a particular parenting style that has limited Brandon's ability to experiment with responsibility and learn that he can do things on his own. He looks and acts and talks uh, often like an adult. Now, sometimes you look and he kind of acts like he's 17. And sometimes it's hard to remember that he is 27. But but he definitely comes across like you know he like he's in his twenties and uh, it for him it, underneath that veil of adult looking uh, behavior underneath that is a four year old or, or you know just as me just speculating it's possible that underneath that is a four year old that has never had the confidence built from doing things on their own. And so when he thinks about standing up to his mom, it might just be this big black abyss that is terrifying to him. Anyway, so let's take a break and we get back. Let's answer some more emails. All right, this next email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, uh, it's actually a long email that... I'm just going to skip to the end here. They describe how they go back and forth with their ex-partner and they have a kid with that person. And she says, I know you can't give advice on specific situations, but I don't know how to stay out of the relationship with him. He makes me feel bad when we are together, but it's even more painful when we are apart and I have to see him because of our son. We have been on and off so many times that I can't even count. I have tried to leave, but I have no idea how to stay away from him. I feel like I'm wasting my 20s being unhappy about him, and I want to be happy and enjoy myself. Do you have any advice on how to leave, and more importantly, stay out from a relationship that is not doing you any good? End of email. Yeah, so as far as I can see it, you have three roads available before you. One road is to continue doing things as you have been, and essentially, in all likelihood, have your future to be very similar to your past. The second road available to you is to actually try to improve your relationship with him. It's possible that you can salvage the relationship 
And if you go to couples therapy, maybe there's a connection there that is worth trying to salvage. I mean, clearly when you go back to him, some of some part of you for both of you is thinking maybe this can work out and maybe it can and couples therapy can help with that. The third option is to figure out a way to leave. And this could probably only be facilitated if you go to individual therapy. Common issues that you would work on would be attachment anxiety that you experience when you're alone. There's a lot of things you can do in therapy to help with that. You know, as you're in a relationship with him, you're like, I don't like being with him. And then you leave. And because you're alone and because you have a lot of fears being alone and you experience a lot of pain in being alone, your mind and body says, well, I can reduce the pain of being alone if I just go back to him. It's a very easy thing. It's sort of like when you're trying to quit smoking or something. It's very hard to quit smoking because there are cigarettes or you know nicotine uh, vape stores on every corner. And so you are going through the pain of, of withdrawal. You're going through the pain of having to resist doing something that is a very strong habit. And you just know, you know, you're thinking to yourself, well, I want to quit smoking, though. I, I don't want to do this anymore. But another part of you is like, you know, you know that pain you're feeling and all of that anxiety you're feeling? Well, that will go away instantly if you just drive to the 7-Eleven and buy a pack of cigarettes and smoke a cigarette. So it's the same when... The issue is that when you're away, you have this extreme pain of loneliness and you're like, well, you know, there's a little thing out there. You just call him up and he'll be there for you. Also, not having any secure attachments outside of him can result in being very anxious and pained and lonely when you aren't with him. A lot of people will focus on this. They'll be like, you know, I need to break up with this person. It, It doesn't feel good. Well, if you have no one else in your life and or you don't have any strong emotional attachments with other people, then you're just jumping into the wilderness without any tent or food or a backpack or hiking shoes. You're you're just alone in the woods. And so it it makes sense. You're going to run back to shelter. And if he's the only shelter, then that's what you're going to do. All right, this next email is from an anonymous upper-tier patron. They write, I listened to your deep dive on suicide. Do you think that people with chronic suicidal ideation are different from those who experience more transient thoughts of suicide? When I was in a psychiatric hospital, I told a therapist there that I had been suicidal for 15 years. Though I have been involuntarily hospitalized twice, I have never actually made an attempt. The therapist had said that because my plan was so carefully thought out, it was probably a fantasy to escape my current situation. I interpreted that to mean that she did not think that I actually wanted to die and I was never going to actually attempt. I feel that most resources for suicidal people assume that intent to die is transient. The assumption is that they stop you if that if they stop you in the moment, the desire will go away quickly and you will Uh, that you will want to live after that. That hasn't been my experience. Despite years of treatment, the desire to die is still there. Have you heard or read anything related to what that therapist said? End of email. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. First thing I'll say is I'm really sorry that you're going through that. It's terrible that you feel that way. 
I've worked with clients who have had that experience of a pretty constant and long-term desire for suicide, a desire to have never been born. And it's a tremendous amount of suffering. And so I'm really sorry. I'm glad that you're in therapy and that you've been through a lot of treatment. And of course, to everyone out there, make sure you just Google suicide hotline and call those people. You can talk to them anonymously whenever you want. And a lot of times intent is transient. And if you just get through that moment, you can emerge on the other side happy that you got through that. So yeah, usually intent to die from suicide is transient. Research shows this in that you might have minor thoughts of suicide here and there, but then something goes wrong in your life. And for like a week or even just an hour, uh, you will have an intense desire for suicide. And if we can get people through those moments, then yes, a lot of times we can prevent an attempt from occurring. And yes, a lot of people when talking about suicide will really highlight this and it might not seem very reflective of your experience. The reason why people will highlight this is because there's this notion out there that if someone wants to die, then they're just going to make it happen. And that for a lot of people with suicidal thoughts, that's not true. And I used to think this too. It's sort of a defeatist thought. It's like, well, if I get them through this week, what's the point? Eventually, they're going to have the space and the time to kill themselves. And so why, why put a lot of effort into it this week when, you know, uh, next year or five years from now, they're just going to eventually do it anyway. And we need to dispel that myth by pointing out that for the vast majority of people who experience suicidal thoughts, if we can help them get through those moments, then they will thank us afterwards. But that isn't true for everyone. For some people, they will have a very fairly consistent intent to die by suicide that will last for years. As you said, for 15 years, you've been thinking about suicide. So, yeah, I could see how when people talk about it, like, we just have to help people get through, you know, these little short moments of intent. For you, Anonymous Upper Tier Patron, you're just like, that's not really how it is for me. Now, let's go on to what that therapist said. They said, because your plan was so carefully thought out, and possibly because you haven't attempted yet, it was probably a fantasy to escape your situation. And then you interpreted, you extrapolated from that, that the therapist did did not think you were actually going to attempt. Now, it's important to point out that that therapist did not say that. That person, that clinician did not say that. All they said was that you're plan was so carefully thought out, it was probably a fantasy to escape your current situation. For some people, that is a good enough reason to attempt, right? So I don't know if the clinician was necessarily saying that. The other thing to think about is that at the time you were in a hospital, and it might not be enough time to fully assess you, particularly given the ins and outs of your personality and the ongoing nature of your suicidal thoughts. And so just taking that into consideration when you think about what that therapist said. You've talked with a lot of other therapists about this. You said you've been in treatment for a long time. And so, you know, it's just one person's opinion. But I want to be clear that even though you haven't attempted and you've been thinking about suicide for 15 years, that does not mean you're not going to attempt. That is a false notion out there. And I see clinicians sometimes thinking that of just like, 
Maybe this is a, they call it a suicidal gesture or manipulative suicidal thoughts or a fantasy. And people with those conceptualizations will still attempt and, and succeed sometimes. So let's not delude ourselves and let's not let our guard down. The thing is, is that some people just live with thoughts of suicide maybe for their entire life, even though they're going to therapy, which is just horrible, right? But it happens. Keep going to therapy, keep healing, and keep living your life. And know that the world is a better place with you in it. Know that you have something to offer the world. Know that you have purpose in life. And whether or not you're connected with that, uh, you know, depends on what where you are on that path. But I've worked with a lot of people who have had ongoing thoughts of suicide. And after all the things we do, they still have these thoughts that just pop into their head like, oh, it'd just be so much easier if I weren't alive. And we would just learn, look, I think this is just part of your personality. And it's a barometer sometimes for how you're feeling, that you just have this very habitual thought in your mind. And when you listen to that thought, and you trace back where the feelings that generated that thought, then it helps. Like for someone else who doesn't have that, there might be other barometer indications of how you're feeling. So let's say for someone else, they notice that they frequently will feel angry at their spouse. They're just like, oh, you know, they're they're alone and they're thinking about their spouse. They're just like, oh, my spouse they're just such a jerk face. And then with awareness, we learn that, oh, whenever I have those thoughts, what's really happening is I'm feeling hurt and I'm feeling lonely. And when I feel that way, it slowly morphs over time into me having these kind of repetitive sentences in my brain of how my spouse is such a jerk face. So that would be a barometer for what's going on underneath. Well, for you, it, it's possible that when you have thoughts of suicide, when that pops into your head, if you trace back where that generated from, you might find and discover that there's some something painful or something emotional that's happening underneath all that that eventually results in this cognitive thought of, hmm, I wonder if I w- it would be easier if I weren't alive. And maybe for your entire life, that's just what you look for. You're like, oh, I'm thinking about suicide. What's going on? What's going on underneath? What are my needs? What needs aren't being met? That sort of thing. But of course, make sure that you get treatment. Make sure you continue down the path. I've also worked with people who, after 25 years of thinking about suicide, they have a, a you know life where they just don't think about it very much. And so make sure that you uh, have that hope and know that that is a possibility for sure. All right, this next email is from upper tier patron Teresa from Dallas. She writes, I used to have very poor anger control issues. Anger was my main emotional state. Now, though I am sober and on medication and in therapy, I find it almost terrifying for me to get angry at someone I'm romantically involved with. So instead, I suppress my anger in relationships and kind of just let the other person get their way or just tell them that they're right. It seems to have gone from one extreme to the other, and I can't find a balance. It makes it hard to set boundaries because I'm just terrified of anger in a relationship because of how I was in the past and how I grew up as a child with a violent household. How can I properly express anger when I am getting agitated? End of email. 
Yeah. Well, the first thing obviously is going to therapy. Therapy is a great place for this sort of thing. When you need help with this, obviously growing up in a violent, abusive household, you have a lot of trauma recovery there, emotional regulation. Therapy is perfectly designed to help you with that. The way that I would look at it is that you're definitely on the right track. You are in stage two of a three-stage process. You started out with aggressive anger, might even say abusive anger. That was stage one. Stage two is control of the aggression, which you are succeeding in wonderfully, which is fantastic. You are experiencing some of the problems of that, but it's much better to be in the state you're in right now than abusively angry and aggressively angry with other people around you. The third stage, which you're heading towards, is assertiveness. So keep going down that road. You're doing great. And sometimes it takes a lot of time to emerge from that childhood trauma. It can take a long time. So how do you achieve assertiveness? Well, first off, you learn emotional regulation. You slow down. You take some deep breaths. You reassure yourself. Maybe you take a walk around the block. Then when you're ready to communicate how you feel, when you're agitated, you use your words. You don't intimidate. You watch your tone. You might even ask for feedback and respond to that feedback. Anger to you because of your childhood, in all likelihood, it's either aggressive or it's silent. There are many ways to express your anger. And you might have no models to follow, no role models to follow. So let me provide one. So you're agitated. Take a deep breath. Walk around the block. Calm yourself down. Get yourself to a state where you're not completely triggered. And then you approach and you say something like, so I'm feeling a lot of anger right now and I have impulses to be mean, but I know that that's not fair and I don't want to do that. So I'm just going to tell you what you did that annoyed me, but know that I'm really trying hard to communicate this in a nice way and I might fail and I'm open to feedback here. You also might say, can I just have a hug? You know, you could just be like, so right now I'm, I'm really triggered and I'm feeling a lot of anger and I have a lot of bad impulses right now, but instead of being quiet and suppressing everything that's happening for me, I, can I just get a hug from you? Can you just hold my hand and, and just sit with me for a second while I try to do this? When you're angry, you're suffering and you need to get care for that. Maybe you have a friend that you call uh, and you're just like, I'm really angry at my spouse and I need to use you as my friend so I can voice it. And then I can return to a place of more differentiation and then I can approach my spouse, you know, work, a, work into a system. And obviously going to therapy would help. All right. This next email is from anonymous upper tier patron. They write, you spoke at length in the 2016 adoption episode about many issues regarding adoption. And after listening to the recent episode as well, I was wondering if there is also a category for adopted people who have not had any emotional issues surrounding their adoption. I was adopted at birth. I always knew I was adopted. I always knew why I was adopted. And it was just never a thing for me. It was always just a part of who I was and wasn't a negative thing. I've had therapists over the years push to find something that just didn't seem to be there other than an academic curiosity about my historical biological past. 
end of email. Yeah, so let me break this out a little bit. The, the first thing I'll say in response to what you're saying is absolutely. There's plenty of people who have been adopted, particularly when they're adopted early in their life within the first few months, where it isn't a thing. It's an interesting thing about their past, but they don't have any negative effects from the adoption. So if I said that, if I indicated somehow that that wasn't possible, then I misspoke because I certainly know a lot of people who have been adopted very early in life who don't have an issue. The, there are two other categories of people that I, I'm sure I talked about in the other episodes. The first category of, of, the, of the individual is someone who was adopted later, you know, past the six months uh, after birth. And these people, even if they're raised well, will often exhibit some extreme attachment issues. And this can result in a lot of behavioral problems, a lot of emotional issues, a lot of relationship problems, and can be very difficult for the adoptive parents and for anyone involved in these people's lives. Now, it's not always the case. You can certainly be adopted two years after you were born and still be okay, but you're probably going to have at least some issues regarding what happened to you. The issue is that when you're very young, when you're six months to 12 months old, it's very important that people have a consistent caregiver that hopefully lasts for a long time. So it's not just adoption that can cause this problem. It could be parents who were drug addicted, parents who were depressed, parents who were fighting all the time, parents who had too many children, parents who were refugees and didn't have enough emotional resources to take care of their kids. There's a lot of reasons why you can have massive attachment disruption when you're very young. So that category of person, I've treated a lot of people like that, both as children, teens, and adults. The second category of people who were raised pretty well and perhaps adopted pretty early in life, maybe even at birth. For some of those people, for whatever reason, and we could you know, uh, speculate as to why, they have a lot of issues, even though they were raised pretty well. At the age of 15, there's just a certain feeling that some people will get of like, okay, even though my adoptive parents are great, and even though I was adopted at birth, and even though I don't have any massive attachment disruptions in my life, I do feel a kind of an emptiness, a longing. And I feel sort of hurt that my biological parents gave me up for adoption. So even though people were, uh, are, they're doing okay for the most part, there's still something kind of nagging at them, some sort of existential path that they're on regarding struggling with their uh, adoptive status. Okay, so I've probably talked about that category of people as well. And then there's a third category of people who are adopted early in life, and they don't have that issue. And it's just a, a detail, an interesting detail about their history, but they don't have any negative effects. And it doesn't surprise me, Anonymous Upper Tier Patron, that your therapists would push you to identify that adoption had some big effect on you. Because a lot of therapists essentially assume, because a lot of people do have this, they basically assume that if you are adopted, there there has to be some kind of negativity there, some kind of struggle there. And you don't have that. And that is absolutely possible. And I've seen that a lot as well. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Taylor from Oregon. Taylor writes, I was raped by my older sister. I just recently disclosed my feelings towards her thanks to all your reaction videos. And I read somewhere that being molested or raped from a sibling is common. 
Is it really that common? End of email. Well, first off, I'm really sorry that you went through that. Being sexually assaulted by anyone is awful. By someone in your family, that's a, a double whammy because we're supposed to be safe when we work with our family. And so to have that threatened is a, a double trauma there. Uh, you ask a question, is it is it common? Well, it depends on what we, what we mean by common, right? But if we look at the actual percentage rates, it's actually hard to measure. It, it happens a lot more than people think, for sure. Uh, for example, according to a lot of studies, it's much more if, – if a child is being sexually assaulted, it's much more likely that it was a sibling that was assaulting that child than if it was a parent or a grandparent or, a, or an aunt or an uncle or something like that, perhaps even 20 times more common. So it's something that you know when you hear about a child being sexually abused by a family member, I think most people immediately think of a father. But – what probably we should be thinking about, the, the first assumption you should make is that, oh, it's probably a sibling. Now, some people might think, well, what's the difference between children experimenting, so to speak, with sexuality and abuse? Well, it can be a hard thing to delineate, but generally speaking, experimentation doesn't have harm, it doesn't have coercion, it doesn't have exploitation, it doesn't have shame, and abuse does. So it now now can some harmless experimentation be seen by the victim as like, well, it was kind of like we were experimenting, but it's also kind of like I was being abused. That can happen too. So it's it's not always cut and dry, but usually victims know. They're like, no, no, no. I was being coerced. I did not feel good about it. I definitely felt like that person was using me, that kind of thing. So prevalence, again, hard to measure, but anywhere between 2 to 5% of children have been sexually assaulted by a sibling. And far fewer children have been sexually ass assaulted by a parent or by a grandparent or aunt or uncle, an adult in the family. So, yeah, it's 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 a lot more common than people think, and and I've I've treated a lot of people who have been assaulted by a sibling. I've treated families where it happened just previously, and we have to do a lot of things to make sure that the older sibling doesn't have access to that to that you know because imagine you're you're a parent and you have two children and your older child sexually abused the younger child and it gets out you know at CPS is called and you have therapy involved well what's the solution there you you know do you take and let's say the older kid is 8 years old or 12 years old does that kid go into prison yeah i don't know does that kid get moved get moved to another house well what about that kid's attachment needs being need you know being met by their parents so often what happens is both kids stay in the house both the perpetrator and the victim but you have to take all these measures where they're never alone and you can know that it's never going to happen again because of all the different things that you're doing to make sure it never happens again so and i've worked with families in situations like that and it gets pretty hairy but uh, it happens, and there are practical solutions to the whole thing. Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, let's do one more email here. Upper-tier patron Heidi from Miami said, 
My mother's opinion has such a strong influence in my life, so much so that I'm afraid to confront her of the fact that I am back with an ex that she did not approve of. I'm 24, so I should be able to have no issues with the fact that she does not like him, but because I and because I am my own person, but she will see this as a betrayal to her. Do you have any tips to disengage in this type of relationship? End of email. Well, I would listen to all my episodes on enmeshment and whatnot. There's a lot of things to say. But the key question to ask yourself, Heidi, is what is your goal? And obviously going to therapy would help with this. Is your goal to disengage, as you said, or is your goal to change the relationship that you have with her? Because if your goal is to disengage, then you just go on a campaign over probably the span of years to distance yourself from that person either subtly or or overtly. Overtly meaning you just say, look, I don't like you and I'm going to distance myself from you or whatever you say. Or subtly where you just slowly extract yourself from their life and although they might do a lot of things to suck you back in, you just don't respond and you take a while to respond to their texts or whatever and you just slowly extract yourself from their life. And then you get support in that effort from other people. You go to people and say, I have this urge that I feel bad. Like I, my mom is sucking my, me back in. And then your support people, your therapist tells you, no, you know, you don't have to if, if you don't want to. Remember that you're on a campaign to disengage from that person. The other goal is to change the relationship. And if that's what you want to do, then that's a more complicated thing. You have to change the way the two of you interact, which for 24 years might you know, be a different way of of interacting. You might have had 24 years of enmeshment and to change that is difficult. So obviously going to therapy, going to family therapy, you and her go to therapy. And the key is, is that you're trying to figure out a way that you can assert your needs while showing her that you want to remain close to her, that you want a relationship with her, but you just want it to be different. Usually when people try to change a relationship, they're trying to pull away. And what that will cause is a lot of anxiety in the other person. And so they will fight back. They will get these messages like you're trying to pull away and they don't want that to happen. So they will really fight for the enmeshment. Whereas if you tell them, look, I want to be in a relationship with you. I love you. You're my mother. And I, I want to be involved in your life and I want you to be involved in mine. I just want it to look a little different than it has up until this point. For example, I am back with my ex and I have been thinking for weeks about how to tell you. And I feel like that's kind of wrong. I feel like you should be in my corner and that you should understand me and that you should support me. And you're free to talk about your opinions, but I just feel like you need to respect my decisions and respect, you know, where I'm at with this. And I, I want to involve you in that, but I don't want to involve you if you're just going to make me feel like crap the whole time. And you're going to take it personally that I went back with my ex. Like if you're going to make it into a betrayal of you, that just doesn't make any sense. This is my love life. And yeah, it's going to be a train wreck sometimes. And I, I want you as my mother to, to be there for me and not to make life even more difficult by making this about you. You know, that's a complicated thing. If your mom has relational traumas, which I'm guessing she does, then, you know, it's, it's going to be complicated and she's going to be triggered. And so obviously going to family therapy for that is important. I've treated families like yours, 
people have come to me with this exact problem, an adult child and a parent, and we've worked on it. You know, it, it it's a beautiful opportunity for a family therapist to help with, a relational therapist to help with. And sometimes it doesn't take that long. Sometimes it's just like two months of therapy. So I encourage you to do that. All right. Well, that was fun. Lots of emails I got to there. Uh, I didn't get to nearly as many as I was hoping, as I, <laughs> as I always say. But um, yeah, everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others and assert yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 